What is happening, my good people? How are you? What's going on? What's the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well as we kick off another Monday. As you've come to the right place to listen to everything that's happening in the world of sports with yours truly, your host, Jay Reels, here on the Jay Reels Podcast. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been listening from episode one to now 103, I welcome you guys back. Again, it's a Monday, December the 16th in the year of our Lord, 2019. So to kick us off, my Jay Reels, what's the deals? What is on tap for this podcast? MLB Free Agency, unlike last year when we had to wait till the end of February to get guys like Bryce Harper and Manny Machado signed, not the case this year. Anthony Rendon, Madison Bumgarner, Garrett Cole, Steven Strasburg, and still more to come. But the one big signing, of course, was the Garrett Cole bombshell where nine years and $324 million right here in New York where the Yankees have finally got their man. Does that make them the prohibitive favorites to not only win the American League but the World Series? You know you'll get my take on that later on. Everything that's happening in the NBA, including Kawhi Leonard's return to Toronto. And in the NHL, where Tim Thomas, a one-time hockey hero from Boston, who was the Conn Smythe winner of the Stanley Cup Finals going back to 2011, actually came out with some very jarring and shocking news, which certainly reverberated around the league. You'll get my take on that as well. But right now, front and center, as I've uh, talked about for weeks on end, as we get into the home stretch of the NFL season, Week 15 will be in the books tonight where the Colts visit the Saints. Certainly not a rematch of the Super Bowl 44 2009 season just 10 years ago. Although the quarterback, Drew Brees, is still there. But you got that to close us out this week. And the Saints looking to become the fourth team in the NFC to become 11-3. and To go up against the likes of the Seattle Seahawks, the Green Bay Packers, and the San Francisco 49ers, which will start there. They went through a three-game stretch where they destroyed the Green Bay Packers at home. Followed by a trip to Baltimore, which was tooth and nail in the rain and the muck. And they lose on a last second field goal to Justin Tucker. And then last week, of course, was the game of the year when they marched down the field there at 46-45. They got the big face mask with the George Kittle reception. And then a Robbie Gould field goal to kick them to a 48-46 victory. And you're thinking, this is going to be it for the Niners. They'll probably just soar right into the one seed, have a bye. And be able to put their feet up to see who they'll play in the divisional round. Well, that could still happen. But as of right now, they certainly threw it all out the window yesterday with a Falcon team that, even last week I mentioned, would you be surprised if Atlanta goes in there and beats them? Now, I didn't think that they would. But at the same time, considering that they had a very impressive win earlier this year in New Orleans, they followed that up with a win in Carolina when Carolina was still trying to be a part of the NFC playoff mix. But here they go. They upset the apple cart. And they go ahead with a 29-22 victory. And certainly puzzling to me because as well as the Niners have played throughout this stretch, you didn't think that there was going to be a stinker involved at home. Now, if there was a game that was on the road where they would play down to an opponent or lose another tough game, you could say that. But I certainly was shocked by this. And it certainly reshuffles the NFC deck when it comes to home field is concerned because with Seattle winning yesterday in Carolina... They had to ward off the Panthers there at the end, even though it was a bad game by Kyle Allen, but he got a touchdown there late. But Seattle was able to hang on to put themselves in a position that right now they're at the top of the NFC food chain. And then the Packers had to sweat out a game themselves where Mitchell Trubisky looked like he was ready to pull out some magic out of his rear end where a little old college play between Stanford and Cal looked like it was about to become the equalizing point. Well, really, it would have been 21-19. They had to get the two-point. Because at that point in the game, seconds left, 21-13, they pretty much pass over the middle to 
Tariq Cohen, and then a few flips later, they're pretty much at the five-yard line, but they get tackled. And the Bears, who have been long gone as far as the NFC is concerned, would certainly put a little scare into the Packers at Lambeau yesterday to the tune of a 21-13 win for the Packers. And then on top of all that, with the Niners losing at 11-3 tonight, like I mentioned, if the Saints happen to win, they'll all be at 11-3. But where that shakes down, as far as the seeding and standings are concerned, Seattle right now has the tiebreaker and are at the top of the NFC as it is constituted right now. But remember, if New Orleans does win tonight, they'll shoot up to the one seed because they have the tiebreaker against Seattle and they also have the better conference record than the Green Bay Packers. So New Orleans, with a win, will go from where they are right now, which is number three in the conference, up to number one. And then that will just shoot on down where Seattle will be the two, Green Bay the three, then Dallas, San Francisco right now currently the five. I, it's amazing to think that you could be 11-3 and three or 11-2 and two going into this week and lose a game that they did yesterday to a Falcon team and then find themselves at five considering they had the win of the year just seven days ago in New Orleans. And then you have the Vikings who still are to be heard of right now with a six seed at 10-4. and four. And that's pretty much what you're going to have in the NFC. Because the Rams losing to the Cowboys are actually getting thumped in Dallas. You could pretty much say goodbye to their postseason hopes. A lot of people would think that, hey, with all the permutations of what will happen if they lose two and the Vikings losing two. And right, we understand all that. But you would think the Vikings have come, have had a very good year. They've come this far. Can they stub a toe or hiccup here? Absolutely. They have a big game against the Packers next Monday night, which will be for the division, you would think. But at the same time, either one of those two teams, they should be home free to get to the postseason where the Rams, after a year making it to the Super Bowl and getting off to a 3-0 start and certainly a rough patch in the middle of the season, looks like they're not even going to get a chance to forget about repeat, but even make it to the postseason this year. So the NFC right now, it's just a matter of what's going to happen at the top, which will filter all the way down when it comes to who's going to have the two buys and who's going to have to play the wild card round and get three games to get to a Super Bowl. That's pretty much the only storyline there. And it'll be interesting to see how these teams are going to play each other out. We know at the end of the year, week 17, you have San Francisco and Seattle. So not only is that going to be for division, but that chances are that could probably be for one seed, barring New Orleans stubbing their toe here. And after tonight, they have a game where they play the Titans they got to go to Tennessee, which is going to be an interesting game for them because as we just talked about a second ago, and we'll get to the AFC picture in a minute, about how important it is for Tennessee to not only make it to the postseason, but to be alive for a possible division crown and a first-round game in their building. But the Saints then follow that up with a game on the road against the Carolina Panthers. So the last two games are on the road for the Saints, so certainly no guarantees that they could be a one seed even if they win their final home game tonight. So with Seattle, next week, they host the Cardinals before hosting the Niners. So they got some home cooking here these last couple of weeks. So the Seahawks are looking like they're in good shape. Green Bay, on the other hand, their final two games are on the road as they go to the aforementioned Minnesota Vikings to play on a Monday night and then follow that up with a game in Detroit against the Lions. And you figure the Lions, I've been a dead team walking, but who knows? Again, you can never know Playing an inferior opponent, especially in the division on the road, is always a tricky game. 
And then Dallas and Philadelphia, that's going to be the division come this Sunday in Philadelphia, 425. That's pretty much the game of the day. Because remember, and we'll get to the schedule later on as well, the schedule changes this week where no Thursday night game. You actually have three Saturday games. You have a 1, a 430, and an 815. So you'll certainly get a double dose of NFL here this coming weekend. So I'm sure the wives and the girlfriends aren't going to be too happy if you're trying to digest two days of football. And uh, NFL football at that because college, as we all know, is now getting into, into the bowl season. But we have Dallas and Philadelphia, which obviously is an immense game. And Dallas, they both close out their seasons uh, with the Cowboys at home against the Redskins. And Philly goes up the turnpike to play the Giants for their final game of the season. And then the Niners, as I mentioned, they play their final game on the road in Seattle. And then this week, as a matter of fact, one of the Saturday games, they play 8-15 against the Rams at home. So the Rams, certainly whatever chance that they have of trying to make it to the postseason is a must-win for them. And then Minnesota will close out their season again with the Packers on a Monday night. And then they have the Bears coming into the building. So they certainly have a lot of, uh, of the home crowd and, of course, the home cooking here the next two weeks for the Vikings. And that's pretty much what you got going on there. Obviously, I can't predict who's going to fall where. For all we know, San Francisco will be the one seed as Seattle will stub their toe against the Cardinals. I mean, you figure they're at home. They certainly don't have the same home field advantage as they once did there in the Pacific Northwest. But that's why the NFL is topsy-turvy. And from one week to the next, you just never know. And the Cardinals have been feisty here. That's not to say they're going to go up there and win. But would you be surprised if the Cardinals are in a game within one score in the fourth quarter, putting all the pressure on Seattle to win that game? So that's what you pretty much have in the NFC. As far as the AFC is concerned... Baltimore, with their win on Thursday night, they're looking straight ahead to a one seed as they beat the Jets there. We all know about the rushing record by a quarterback in a regular season for Lamar Jackson. I get the numbers look sexy with the five touchdowns, but he only threw for 100-some-odd yards. And the thing about Baltimore, and I've said it time and time again, they are certainly going to be a threat, but two things with them. One, if you slow their run game, and I understand you're not going to stop them because they have the weapons, whether it's of course, the quarterback, Lamar Jackson, who is the MVP this year. Uh, I don't care if Russell Wilson throws uh, 20 touchdowns the next two weeks. Uh, the MVP of the league is Lamar Jackson. Goes without saying. But with that being said, as, as long as you try to attempt to slow down their run game, and not only that, but if you're going to make Lamar Jackson pass, you have to make them, you got to force them to throw. When they want to throw on their own terms because it's predicated on the running game, that's when Lamar Jackson is deadly. But when, if you're lucky to get a lead against them, and even more so, you put him in a lot of long, you know, third and sevens and third and nines, third and tens. That's when you want to see if Lamar Jackson is going to flourish. And considering that their offense is so tight end driven because his main target, and not only that, but his security blanket is the tight end Mark Andrews. And also you want to sprinkle in a little Hayden Hurst. As long as you do that, then the Ravens, they could have certainly a long afternoon, a long evening. But when they're at, you know, second and two and second and three, or they're clicking off first downs, as if uh, the, the clock is just, it just eats up the game to the point where whether you're a high-powered offense to get on the field, that's not going to work because it's almost like the Buffalo Bills and the Giants, Super Bowl 25. If you're going to eat the clock by using the run and moving the chains that way and scoring touchdowns instead of field goals, that's when you're going to be playing uphill against this team. But that's the way to stop it. Now, of course, there are defensive coordinators and much more smarter NFL people than I am but let me tell you, I, I'll always go back to that game 
last year in the division playoff, as far as the Chargers stacking seven defensive backs, to me, that's the only thing that we've seen that's going to stop that type of offense. And until a defensive coordinator wakes up and turns on the film to that game, then that's what they're going to use. And I understand not everybody's going to have all pro defensive backs. But as we all know, the Ravens have run roughshod throughout the league this year. And here they are again, like I said, they destroyed the Jets 12-2. and They're going to be a one seed even with the Patriots winning yesterday in Cincinnati. As right now, those are going to be your top two seeds without question in the AFC. Patriots winning in Cincinnati. We're going to get to the Patriots a little bit later on as far as their shenanigans off the field. As far as filming sidelines and speaking of the Bengals and things of that nature. So with your three and four seeds, KC winning against Denver in the snow yesterday, which is always good to watch on TV. And then Houston winning a huge game at Tennessee. Very back and forth. I mean, I understand that the Texans got off to a lead there. But also you got to remember that the Titans early on in the game were going for the touchdown, but they had to pick there right at the goal line where Whitney Merciless goes the other way. And then on that possession, they scored a touchdown. So they got off to that 14-0 lead. They came back, but then Houston started to pull away and held on to a 24-21 victory. And then you look at Buffalo last night who secured their first playoff bid in a couple of years. Actually, they've gotten twice in the last three years. But the first time they won 10 games is 1999. So the Bill fan could certainly rejoice. And who knows? Maybe some of the more optimistic ones will probably look at it from a standpoint of we actually could play for the division because they go to New England to play on a 4.30 Saturday afternoon game. So... I'm sure that some Bill fans probably puffing out their chest right now thinking, bring on the Patriots. This is not the same team. Their offense certainly hasn't been as explosive as it has been in the past. So if you're a Bills fan, I'm sure you're probably thinking that you could draw even in the division with the Patriots. But Buffalo last night in the game against Pittsburgh, and let me just cut right to it. Uh, Tough loss for the Steelers. What could you say? I'm not going to say that the clock struck 12 on Devlin Hodges, but at the same time, it did. But here's a guy that, let's face it, you're not expecting much from him. You're expecting him to do just enough. And that's what he's done here in these starts. I mean, he hasn't blown the, you know, hasn't been a world beater or just blown the world by storm by any stretch. But last night was a game where it just made me think back to what Mike Tomlin said a few weeks ago when he benched Mason Rudolph to anoint Devlin Hodges as the starting quarterback. He says, as long as he doesn't kill us, we'll be fine. And guess what? Last night he killed us or killed the Steelers, I should say. I sound like I play for the team. Not only with the interceptions, but also some of the play calling was just puzzling. I get that they're going to incorporate a little bit of the Wildcat, but they had that fumble there at the goal line, which was crucial, where they actually could have went into score. That was a huge play. Then the Steelers, even with Jordan Berry's, who had an awful night, had that punt for 22 yards and third and 18. They couldn't get him off the field. They actually converted on a fourth down before punching it in the end zone. And then at 10-10... I'll even fast forward. I'll skip through a couple of things here because even with the Steelers at 10-7, they able to get the ball to start the second half. They scored a touchdown there, but then they traded off a couple of turnovers where J.J. Watt, or J.J., excuse me, T.J. Watt, Trent Jordan Watt was stripped the ball from uh, Devlin Singletary and they able to get the ball. And then, of course, on that possession, that's when the Steelers turned the ball over themselves to the tune of, The Bills going down the field, 
scoring a touchdown where Collinsworth said, oh, let's go conservative. And he went right to the tight end in the corner there to make it 17-10. And I knew that was the biggest play of the game because the way the Steelers were moving the ball all night, there was no way that I thought they were going to get a touchdown. If they kicked a field goal there, obviously the Steelers were in position to kick a field goal there late in the game on two occasions. But obviously they both ended in interceptions by Hodges, just bad throws, and pretty much the inexperience of being a rookie for playing with his uh, fourth game or fourth start, but five games overall. That uh, certainly came to roost. And the Steelers lost a rough game, but at the same time, they're still in good position as long as they win the next two games. And even if they split the next two, they could certainly get in with a combination of other things with Tennessee. Obviously, their schedule isn't easy, but if they win their next two where they play at the Jets this week, which is going to be an interesting game, they'll play against the Jets. First time Le'Veon Bell will go up against his former team. And you know, after the game that he had against the Ravens the other night where he rushed for 87 yards, was a season high. I'm sure all week, the team is going to rally around Le'Veon to have that big game to stick it to his former team, especially in a playoff hunt. And then they finish on the season in Baltimore against the Ravens, where chances are they'll probably rest everybody, Lamar Jackson, etc. But wouldn't it be fascinating if the Steelers were to win that game and get into the postseason and somehow, some way, were to win their first-round matchup, they will go to Baltimore in the division round. Now, I'm looking way far ahead, and I'm sure that's not even going to happen. But it's just something to think about here as we get closer to the end of the season. So that's what we got there. And then Tennessee, like I said earlier, they're on the outside looking in. Steelers have a better conference record and also I believe a better record when it comes to common opponents and that's pretty much it you're not going to get a lot of drama you're not it's not as if you have you know four or five teams competing for two spots you do have a lot of drama there as far as divisions are concerned if you want to even look at the AFC East obviously the AFC South the NFC East it comes down to everything this coming Sunday in Philadelphia And of course, the NFC West. So you do have some divisional races, which is going to certainly be key as far as seedings are concerned in the postseason. But other than that, it's not like you have a bunch of other teams that are trying to get in to the wild card unless you're the most optimistic Ram fan thinking that, hey, they can win two and then you figure Minnesota is going to do the same. Because besides that in Tennessee, I mean, that's all you have as far as the wild card is concerned. So pretty much these next couple of weeks are going to be all about seeding. And as we look at the upcoming games this week, to, to me, Saturday is the most intriguing week, uh, day of the weekend. And who would have thought with three games, and you would think that Sunday would be the next to last weekend of the season that you get a lot of these great matchups. Well, not really, because Saturday you have Texans and Bucks. Now, the Buccaneers, they could certainly play spoiler. And, you know, not going through all the, the dead weight of the games, but Jameis Winston, who's had a year that... If you're Tampa, you don't know whether you want to re-sign him or just let him go. But we all know he is a feast or famine guy. To the tune yesterday where he throws a pick within his you know first drive of the game. And then he bounces back to throw for, what was it, 430-something yards and four touchdowns. But that is Jameis Winston pretty much his 2019 season. And pretty much his career is in a nutshell in that regard. Because we all know how talented he is. But at the same time, you got to wonder whether or not he's going to be the one you want to push all your proverbial chips in the middle of the table to carry your franchise for the next five, six years. Now, as far as the games are concerned, you got Houston and Tampa to kick you off this Saturday at 1 o'clock, followed by Bills and Patriots. And then you have the Rams and Niners there at night, all on NFL Network. So if you're wondering, changing the channel, looking on CBS or Fox or even NBC, uh uh-uh, you're not going to find it there, only on NFL Network. And then Sunday's games... Yeah, well, you got a couple of good games. In your 1 o'clock hour, 
you don't have much unless you want to look at Ravens Browns because the Browns are going to look to sweep the Ravens and see if the Ravens who have won 10 in a row if they're finally going to get their losing streak snapped you also have Saints and Titans which I mentioned before though it's obviously a big game for both teams you're also looking at the 4 o'clock window with Cowboys and Eagles your Sunday night game and of course they couldn't flex it out because what other game you're going to put there I guess you could have put Saints and Titans uh, Fox probably would have released that too NBC to pick that up as a flex game but your game is Chiefs and Bears you only hope for some snow some cold weather and some elements to kind of make it that much more fascinating because the game is going to mean everything for the Chiefs and and not really everything what I mean by that is just from a standpoint of seeding because remember right now they are in the three seed at nine and five uh I should say ten and four excuse me at uh, 10 and 4 and then Houston is 9 and 5 and if they end up tied at the end of the season because Houston beat them earlier this year in Kansas City they'll have the tiebreaker so it's big for them in that regard but uh, again it's not a great matchup and then uh, your Monday night game as I mentioned 15 times already is Packers Vikings which obviously means a ton but your other 1 o'clock games are just uh, might as well just take a nap Steelers Jets uh, Jags and Falcons Panthers, Colts, Bengals, Dolphins, Giants, Redskins, Lions, Broncos. I mean, that's what you're looking at here for week 15. So pretty much Saturday is your big focus. 1 o'clock Saints, Titans, Cowboys, Eagles at 425. And then you have your Sunday night, Monday night games to wrap up a week 16. Now, as far as the Patriots, I'll go back to them. I mean, of course, they won a game yesterday. What was it? 34, 13, whatever the score was in Cincinnati. I know a lot of the news that broke actually after the podcast last week came up where there was a camera crew from New England filming the sideline of the Bengals when the Cincinnati Bengals visited the Browns the week prior. And of course, everybody started thinking about Spygate and what have you, but it wasn't until yesterday that it was revealed through Fox and Jay Glazer that there's this exchange between the Bengals security and the Patriots videographer had come out where they have this video series that's been going on. I guess it's on their website called Do Your Job. And the Bengal security has captured, for, I guess from their own webcam or whatever body cam that this guy was wearing, looking at the footage that was shot by the Pat's videographer. And you hear the exchange about, hey, you're trying to, you know, you're a van scout, you're trying to get some footage for the game, but you have everything angled on the sideline. What's going on there? So then the... Pat videographer started to deflect and say, oh, hey, well, I could delete it. It's not a problem. And he said, Bengal security guy's like, well, the damage is already done, my guy. I mean, what are you doing? So over and over, he says, well, I could destroy it. It's no big deal. But it is a big deal because we all know the history of the Pats over the years. I mean, we go through all the scandals and controversies. But how I look at it is this. I don't think Bill Belichick is behind this. And I understand people be like, oh, come on, Jay Reels. How do you know? How do you not know? Or, of course, I don't know. This is all based on speculation and opinion. Because they've been burned before. We all know the history going back to really much Spygate. Because Deflategate, that was just a mess where, obviously, Tom Brady was the one that got penalized throughout all this. But with the $500,000 fine, the number one draft pick, I don't think... I mean, Belichick's too smart to go down that road again. I'm sure whomever the Patriots videographer was... How long they've been doing this, who knows? Who knows if they go in week in, week out to various stadiums and watch some of these games and they're filming the sideline and this is the one time that they got caught? Who knows? But I don't think Belichick's behind this. I wouldn't be surprised if Belichick 
in whatever way, shape, or form, not to say he's the mastermind behind it, but maybe there's somebody beneath him that's somehow getting this information and trying to be in a clandestine type of way to convey to the coach that, hey, well, we noticed these types of substitutions are taking place or on first down, this is what their match or whatever it may be. Because again, I'm not in the room, I'm nowhere near Foxborough, and I certainly don't have a connect to explain to me what goes on with these videos the videographer and them, you know, filming these sidelines. But at the same time, I don't think Belichick is appointed somebody to say, hey, I want you to film the Bengals sideline. I mean, they got burned even going back to, what was it, Super Bowl 36 with the Rams in the walkthrough and videotaping that stuff. So I don't think he is behind that, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's somebody below, whether it be one of the assistant coaches or one of the officials on the Patriots where they convey it to him and whatever connection or relationship he has with Belichick maybe it's conveyed in that way shape or form and probably Belichick's not even thinking like wait is somebody videotaping this on the side or who knows but the Patriots are going to be at fault here and it's going to be a penalty of some sort I don't know if it's going to be a draft pick I don't think the coach is going to get suspended I don't believe his fingerprints are on this he's much more smarter than that but at the same time this is just another black eye for the Patriots and makes you think and wonder throughout all these years yet again what is going on behind the scenes and why are they trying to get this advantage or this extra advantage by cheating the system? And it's certainly a bad optic. I mean, what could you say? Now, of course, I can't stand the Patriots, as everybody knows. But I don't think the coach is going to be coming on the fire here. I don't think that the league is going to do anything to Robert Kraft. I'm sure he's not aware of this. Well, obviously, until now. But I would think that whomever this videographer is or who he works with there, if he works with somebody from the team, whether it's an official, whether it's somebody on the coaching staff, uh, until that gets brought to the surface, I don't don't think this has anything to do on the Patriots coaching per se, unless something like this comes out in the weeks to come. Now, they say they want to act swiftly on this. Uh, They got to do a lot more investigation, I would think, because that means they'd have to talk to personnel, they'd have to talk to coaches and things of that nature to find out whether or not if somebody in that organization is involved other than some video guy that works for the Pats but wants to put up these videos on a weekly basis for their website. So who knows? And then the other thing coming out of the NFL this week, which I found not only just rather disgusting, because when you look back, especially the whole concussion thing, the League of Denial, that film that was made, based on the book there about concussions in the league. And if you think about the movie Concussion, that's also tied into that as well, about how players who aren't getting the medical care, just from a grander scale, you know, aren't getting the medical care, the players of yesteryear, the players that have paved the way, that are certainly on downtimes, they don't have the insurance, certainly don't have the money to go ahead and get any type of treatment, to get any type of extensive health care, all those things along the line. And then you have the story that came out where 10 former players were charged with defrauding the league's health program of millions of dollars. And it looks like it was uh, spearheaded by Clinton Portis and Joe Horn. Those are the top two names. And there was, of course, uh, the other eight players. If people who follow the league, Tamarick Vanover, Carell Buckhalter used to play for the Philadelphia Eagles, Carlos Rogers, wide receiver. Oh, I'm sorry, I was a defensive back. I got to mix with Charles Rogers. My apologies, may he rest in peace. Carlos Rogers with the Redskins. This is just despicable to think that they will go ahead and do this where a lot of these indictments were made from claims 
on uh, expensive pieces of equipment, medical equipment like hyperbaric uh, oxygen chambers, you know, core, uh, cryotherapy machines. And then they also tried to recruit players to join in on the scheme to get kickbacks. And it's just a sort of details about these players doing this. Now, I don't know what's going to come down from them, what kind of punishment they're going to get, whether they're going to get jail time. I don't know. I mean, obviously, they're bucking the system. And it's just a shame because when you think about the players of yesteryear and how they've had to fight just to get any type of benefits or any type of health care, any assistance, and then you have these guys going out and doing this. It's just, oh my goodness. Couldn't believe it. I mean, these guys should know better. But again, you know, anyway, they try to feel like they're going to make some money or get over. or ah, You know, nobody's only taking $10,000 per per or whatever it is. But still, I mean, come on, man. So anyway, so you got that situation going on there. So who knows how that's going to shake down in the uh, weeks to come. So that's what we got with the NFL. Uh, quickly with college football, you had the Army-Navy game. The only thing I'll say is Malcolm Perry rushing for 304 yards and a 31-7 win was the most yardage rushed, uh, rushed in this series between Army and Navy. goes back 120 years. Game played in Philadelphia. Messy weather. And the history continues where Navy just dominates Army in all these games. And uh, Malcolm Perry certainly was a big part of that. And then your Heisman Trophy winner, to no surprise, was Joe Burrow. Pretty much he won that. The game against Alabama. And then he chalked that up in the SEC championship game. For what was it? 350 yards, four touchdowns. So he certainly cemented it with that. And who knows? You would think that with the Bengals right now, the Giants winning yesterday against the Dolphins with three wins. There's no team in the NFL that has two wins. So when you look at the standings, right now the Bengals are at the very top. And I don't think... Even with the, them beating, and they played the Dolphins this weekend, but now the Dolphins already have three wins. So there isn't any other team in the league with two wins. Everybody else has three, whether you're in Washington, Detroit, the Giants. So the Bengals right now are the lock winners of the 2020 NFL draft to get the number one pick overall. And chances are it'll be Joe Burrow, a guy who's actually from the Ohio area. Don't know where. I think he's more from... The Northeast as opposed to the Southwest where Cincinnati is. But you would think that the Bengals will go ahead and draft a one Joe Burrow to kickstart this Zach Taylor regime, as we all know, has been out to sea for a long time and is staring at 1-15 in his first year as coach of the Bengals. So that's what we got there. All right, now let's get to the MLB and talk about everything that's happened here with this craziness that's gone on in baseball and Frankly, I'm quite surprised. I'm surprised that all this has come down. I know a lot of people have said, and who knows, that could be the case where Major League Baseball talked to these agents and talked to the Players Association to say, we cannot have what we had last year when it comes to these these high-priced free agents waiting for a deal in January or, God forbid, into February where spring training and players and catchers are reporting or pitchers and catchers, I should say, where they're reporting and none of these guys are signed on the dotted line. Something must have come down from the top because the last two years and at the very top of this program, as I mentioned, the two top superstars from last year's free agency didn't sign pretty much until the eve of spring training. Well, you didn't get that this year where Steven Strasburg was the first domino of the fall as the Washington Nationals re-signed him seven years for $245 million. I know last week as I was on, I thought... Strasburg would be the guy they'd probably let go and maybe keep Rendon. And we all know it's about pitching. And I get that. But the only reason why I predicted that was 
despite the fact that the Nationals have seemed to plug and play people when Bryce Harper goes and you have Juan Soto and you have another good outfielder, Victor Robles, I didn't know if they had that guy, the corner infielder. I know I mentioned last week, Carter Kaboom, who's a guy that was a catcher in the organization, highly touted prospect, but also had played some infield sparingly in his uh, cup of coffee at the major leagues at this point. But I just thought that considering they have Scherzer for two more years and then obviously Patrick Corbin in the mix, that Strasburg would be the guy to go and maybe get a shot somewhere out in the West Coast where he's near and dear to his heart, San Diego, and maybe perhaps even pitch for the Padres. But Strasburg stays. Rendon goes to the Angels, which is a very puzzling move. Of course, it certainly fortifies their lineup to go along with the likes of Mike Trout, also Shehai Otani, and you want to throw in an aging Albert Pujols there, who's still, his bat is still good. Obviously, he's not the Pujols of old, but still, he's a guy that you could drop down in your lineup, and I'm certainly, certainly would still be productive. But they need pitching in the worst way, and I'm sure the guy that they targeted was Garrett Cole. As we all know, Cole got the, the Godfather offer, nine years, $324 million. There was a word that the Angels were looking to put forth eight for 300 but the Yankees extending that extra year and $24 million on top of that certainly were the winner of the Garrett Cole sweepstakes. And he, has a, he does have an opt-out after five years, which would be age 34 for him. But you would think he's going to play out the rest of this contract no matter how it goes. And of course, the big question is whether the Yankees are the prohibitive favorites to not only win the American League, but of course the World Series. And I'm going to tell you this right now, on December the 16th at 12.58 p.m., the Yankees right now, I'm picking them to not only go to World Series, I'm going to pick them to win the World Series. One of these years they have to win. They went the whole decade without winning a World Series for the first time from the 19th, from the previous century. Same time from the 10s all through the teens. They did not make it to the World Series in the 20th century and obviously didn't do that this century. So Brian Cashman, he could do nothing the rest of this offseason. And we get that they brought back Brett Gardner one year, $12.5 million because you have Aaron Hicks who's on the shelf with the Tommy John surgery. He's probably not going to come back till you would think the All-Star break. And I get they probably want to tie up some loose ends, maybe bring back Dylan Patances to an already loaded bullpen and whomever else may be out there just to kind of shore up whatever it may, who knows, they may even trade try to trade Jay Happ because he has two more years left that I believe... What is he making? $40 million, so they probably want to dump some of his salary to see if they can bring back whether it be a, another outfielder. Who knows? But right now, Brian Caston doesn't have to do another thing because he has already won the offseason with the Big Fish. And again, Yankees, to me, not only going to win the American League, but I think they're going to win a World Series. Who's going to be in the Dodgers? As we all know, the Dodgers, they've been there twice in the last three years and didn't do anything. And they gagged last year against the Nationals up 2-1 in the postseason. We're certainly not going to look at the Cubs because with a new manager and with reports of Chris Bryant at third baseman being traded, you don't think it's going to be the Cubs. The Nationals, you don't think are going to repeat. Phillies, I know that they made a lot of moves here and we'll get to a couple of them with Didi Gregorius who goes down to reunite himself with Joe Girardi for a one-year deal, which is good for him. Please, there is no team out there. The Indians, if you're going to look at this in the American League, I mean, geez, they traded Corey Cooper to the Texas Rangers for a couple of guys with Delano DeShields Jr. and another right-handed pitcher. Uh, the Yankees are just, to me, they just, it, I, do I want to say it's going to be 
1998 all over again, I'm not going to go as far as saying that, but I could see it being that type of year. For a team that was not healthy last year and still won 103 games, this team, I could see Watson be fully healthy and they'll probably win 114 games, just like they did that year, and then just breeze through the postseason. So let me get my rest now for those who've listened to the podcast when the Yankees were eliminated by the Astros a couple months ago. Let me make sure I get all my beauty rest as much as I could certainly get because something tells me this time next year I'm going to be tossing and turning having a Yankee fan in my ear all went along about ha 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 World Series 28 where are the Mets the Mets suck etc etc and speaking of the Mets well you know what let me wrap up here with the Madison Bumgarner 5 for 85 in Arizona and we get there's a lot of mileage on that arm and he's had some injuries here over the last couple of years but to think he got a very considering Zach Wheeler got 5 for 118 for the Phillies and we understand he doesn't have the mileage on his arm that Bumgarner has but 5 for 118 and Bumgarner got $33 million less to play in Arizona so that's going to be interesting because he's going to face his former team anywhere between 4 to 6 times next year and what's also is puzzling as I mentioned the Angels why didn't the Angels make an offer to Bumgarner because here they, they need starting pitching in the worst way. I don't think they're going to go to Shohei Otani to pitch these games next year, you would think, as he's coming off the Tommy John. I guess they may be that desperate ways he's going to pitch every now and again. But at the same time, why didn't they fork over the money or even pay a little bit more for Bumgarner to be part of the mix and then go to Arizona? Well, I don't understand that Bumgarner wants to stay in the National League and he wants to bat as he's a very good hitter, as we've seen over the years, but... I don't know what Artie Marino and their GM was because they certainly didn't step up to the plate. Maybe they just thought that there's no way that Bumgarner's going to go there because he just wants to stay in the National League. But hey, if you gave him the same offer that Zach Wheeler was, you know, that the Phillies delivered to, you would think that at the same time that, hey, why not? If he got, if I'm going to get $118 million or 110 105 I'm going to sign right here too. But that's not the case. And uh, that's what you have there with the uh, Angels. And there's still a few guys left on the table. You know, Dallas Keuchel, we got to wonder about. And, Josh Donaldson, where's he going to go? Hinjun Ru, Marcelo Zuna. So you still have some good guys out there. Yasiel Puig, who I know is in Japan working out. Who knows? You could probably see him playing in Japan somewhere. So you still got a few guys that are left on the free agent docket. So let's see where they goes in the uh, days and weeks to come. And as far as the Mets are concerned, of course they're going to, unfortunately, go to Kmart and go shopping. And they did. So with Zach Wheeler gone, they bring in Michael Waka, who is a guy that Certainly, a lot of people thought was going to have, will be one of the top pitchers in the National League. Being drafted, what was it, 2012, and then he made it to the big show the following year. He had one good year where he was 17-7, and seven, but injuries have certainly curtailed a little bit of his promise and his potential. Well, he comes to the Mets on a one-year deal, as well as Rick Porcello, former Red Sox, as we all know, won a Cy Young in 2016. Both of these guys, you would only hope that maybe for one year they could certainly put forth a very good effort. They're probably going to battle out for the fifth spot unless the Mets are certainly thinking creatively to trade either a one Steven Matz. You don't think they're going to trade Noah Syndergaard as said by the general manager, but stranger things have happened. So the Mets had those two pitchers, which are, they're upgrades. I mean, obviously they're not of the ilk of Zach Wheeler and I'm not trying to make Zach Wheeler out to be Bob Gibson, but at the same time, you know, Porcello's a guy who has a higher rate in American League. And he's pretty much going to be pitching in the best division in baseball come next year. And Waka is a guy that knows the National League, but can he stay healthy? 
And what can he contribute? And he's already said right now that he's a starting pitcher. So I don't think bullpen is going to be one for him as far as his psyche is concerned. So we'll uh, certainly have plenty of time to see how that's going to play out for the Mets. And uh, that's pretty much what you got with the baseball. As I'm looking through here. Yeah, that's pretty much what you got. So like I said, those remaining free agents are left. And uh, we'll certainly keep our eye on that. As far as the NBA is concerned, you know, last week I came out and mentioned how the NBA, as we all know, the long season and how these games get lost in the middle of the year. I know my example was right before Thanksgiving, the Lakers went into New Orleans, which was the first time Anthony Davis was going into hostile territory, knowing that the crowd was going to be on him. We all know what happened toward the middle of last season, demanding a trade, wanting to go to the Lakers, wanting to go to contender, that he's not going to sign with the Pelicans, yada, yada, yada. And how that game on Thanksgiving Eve to the tune of 41 points when the Lakers did win, not only was that an afterthought, but I even forgot that that game took place. And mind you, that Monday, I did mention on the podcast that that was a game to look forward to to see what was going to happen. And the following week, I didn't even bring it up because it was no big deal. So then here this past Monday, as I'm talking about that, not knowing that on Wednesday night, or just this past Wednesday, that it was Kawhi's return to Toronto since them winning the championship, and totally forgot about that. Now, Kawhi, the Raptors, we all know about the what happened last year, got the great ovation that was expected, Kyle Lowry gave him his ring there at center court, but then the Raptors went ahead and won the game. And that was pretty much it. But that's what the NBA season is all about. I mean, it's just, it's weird. When you look forward to some of these games or these matchups, you want to try to circle on the calendar, but it does get lost until I saw, I believe it was what, Tuesday, I'm on the ESPN website and I see tomorrow, 7 p.m., Clippers at Raptors. I'm like, oh, geez. And that's the sad thing about the NBA because all these games get lumped together unless it's the Christmas Day games or when you start getting into the latter part of January where the football season's over, when you start getting the Game of the Week's the Saturday Night Showcase on ABC because the TNT games and the ESPN games and miles were just all lumped together because none of those games, although they're good matchups, but I'm certainly not glued to find out what the NBA calendar is for this upcoming week to see, oh, who's going to play who? You know, Celtics and Lakers will play Wednesday night and everybody knows I'm a huge Celtic fan, but it's almost like who cares? Just get me to April or get me to the end of the Super Bowl so you can concentrate more on the NBA and kind of follow not only these teams but when these key games are being played so that's what you got there uh, other news this week now Luka Doncic who turned his ankle a couple nights ago in uh, not in Miami against Miami Saturday where he suffered a sprained ankle he's going to be on the show for two weeks obviously that's a that's an injury that everybody's going to monitor. We all know about Luka Doncic and what he's done so far this year, of course, with him and Giannis. And you got throwing LeBron there with what he's done, and even Anthony Davis for that matter. They've been the top four players in this league by far. But uh, we'll see how long he's going to be out because, as we all know, Luka is a special player at his tender age and the things that he's done so far. That if you're an NBA fan, to see him out for any extended period of time, that's just it's tough. And interestingly enough, because he plays in the West, even though he plays his games in the South, you you don't see the Mavericks as much. It's not as if you're going to see the Lakers all the time or you're going to see the top teams in the league who are always, you know, the Clippers. You know, Dallas will get sprinkled in there, NBA TV, and some games on 
TNT or ESPN. So to not get a chance to watch him is certainly, the NBA is going to miss him. And hopefully he's not out longer than those two weeks. Then uh, the Lakers, they continue to roll. Uh, I know LeBron visited back in Miami there on Friday night that they had the slow start. And then in his post game saying that uh, the teammates got on his rear to step it up. Anthony Davis and Boogie Cousins in particular, and they steamrolled the heat in the second half. And then, of course, you had the LeBron James Jr. And that whole deal, him going back to his alma mater to watch him play. Uh, I'm not going to spend two minutes on that because I didn't even watch it. But LeBron just, uh, funny enough, how he's in Miami one night, then he's in Ohio the next on a day off, and then he has to go to Atlanta to play a game in which they beat the Hawks there as they're in the middle of a road trip. And then it's some sad news when you have David Stern last week who had to be rushed to emergency surgery because he suffered a brain hemorrhage. 77 years old. We all know how much Stern had meant to the NBA when he was commissioner for what, uh, 40 years or 30 years from 84 to 2014 when Adam Silver took over. So hopefully he's doing well. He's on the comeback. Obviously thoughts and prayers go out to David Stern, his family, etc. And as far as the NBA, I mean, that's pretty much what you got there. Now, Giannis and company, now he actually missed a game last week due to injury. But the Bucks, the beat rolls on there with uh, Milwaukee as right now being the top seed there, 24-3. and three, They have now won 18 games in a row. So before you start thinking, all right, how many games can they win here? What's the record? We all know the record is 33 in a row by the Lakers there in the 71-72 season. And then remember the Heat tried to challenge that, I believe, in the... 2013-14 season. No, I think it was the 2012-2013 season. That was when they won their back-to-back, their second of their back-to-back championships when they beat the Spurs and won 27 in a row that year. So they still have a ways to go to catch the Lakers and even the Heat for that matter. And when you look at their games upcoming, funny enough, they host the Mavericks tonight where that would have been a very interesting matchup with Luka and Giannis. But they have the Lakers coming into their building. So talk about a threat. As far as a winning streak is concerned, that's going to be a TNT game Thursday night. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen, as we look at the NBA calendar for the week to come. Lakers and Bucks this coming week, where you're going to have uh, two teams where the Lakers have won seven in a row right now and the Bucks winning 18 in a row. So that's going to be a clash of the Titans for sure. But with that being said, as the Bucks are now 24 and 3, Miami, even with the loss to the Lakers, they bounce back against the Mavericks there that following game. Followed by Philly, Boston, Toronto, Indy. I mean, we don't have to go through all this, but pretty much you got Milwaukee there. And then the Lakers and Clippers at the top of the Western Conference with the Lakers having a four and a half game lead. OKC's now gotten back themselves into the top eight in the Western Conference. And obviously tons of basketball to be played between now and then. And I'm sure in a couple of weeks we'll look at the uh, Christmas slate as, believe it or not, Christmas is now... Nine days away from today, I tell you. Where the hell does the time go? But uh, that's what you got there in the NBA. And as we turn our attention to the ice, the NHL, uh, pretty much status quo. But the one thing I want to point out, or two things, and uh, sadly, that has to do with uh, matters of health. The first thing, of as far as of current note, Philadelphia Flyers, they're, one of their forwards has this Ewing's... Uh, excuse me, let me start over again with that. The... Flyers, one of their forwards, Oscar Lindblom, has Ewing sarcoma, which is a rare form of bone cancer. 23 years old, and the Flyers have certainly have hit the skids here, not only just with their health, but also in the standings. They've certainly have not played well here. They got pasted by Winnipeg uh, last night, I believe. 
But the Flyers and obviously all our wishes, prayers go out, goes out to this kid, 23 years old, to have this rare form of bone cancer. That's just uh, man, that's just a tough break there. So hopefully he recovers nicely. He'll be out for the rest of the year getting treatment. So hopefully we'll be able to get back on the ice maybe next year or at some point in his career because uh, boy, 23 years old to have that happen to you. Uh, yeah, that's certainly a tough goal. So uh, all thoughts go out to him. But as far as the news that came out early in the week, uh, the goalie, or the former goalie, I should say, the Boston Bruins, who was the Conn Smythe Trophy winner of the 2011 Stanley Cup playoffs, that would be Tim Thomas, was the Bruins won that cup against the Vancouver Canucks. I'll never forget it. It was uh, June 15, 2011. I was on the air that night. It was a Wednesday night on the air doing the old online blog talk radio program. My partner, JD, did not watch the game because, or did not uh, join me on the show that night because he was watching the game, and rightfully so. And Tim Thomas was a guy at 37 years old at that time winning the Consmite Trophy as playoff MVP. Well, in the 2013-14 season, he had suffered a concussion, which pretty much spiraled out of control to the point of that concussion led to him not being able to plan a schedule, decide what he wanted to eat, where to go, has been a recluse ever since that he's been asked to come back on several occasions, including last year's Stanley Cup Game 7 between the Blues and Bruins where the game was in Boston, didn't show up for that. Actually, a bunch of teammates that have been reached out for a particular article, uh, one of the writers there on ESPN tried to reach out to Tim Thomas, and that wasn't going to happen, and then even reached out to a couple of ex-teammates and didn't return calls or texts, and it kind of made you wonder that what, you know, what was happening with this guy, who is really is a hero in Boston. I mean, think about it. They hadn't won a cup in 40 years, and here it is, the goalie who was the playoff MVP was nowhere to be found after that 2013-14 season. And then here he shows up at the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame because he's being inducted as one of the members of that, and because he's pretty much distance himself from anything hockey-related or pretty much, for the most part, anything life-related. Because, as I mentioned, he couldn't even think about where he wanted to go eat or what he wanted to do that particular day or plan any type of schedule because well, the one thing that hockey had regimented himself to was having a schedule. Knowing that he had to get up at a certain time, had to go to practice, obviously went to eat, went to take a nap, prepare for a game, etc. But then once he got out of hockey, he didn't even know what to do with himself. And of course, he couldn't remember half the things or a majority of the things that he needed to do on a day-to-day basis. So what happened was he showed up at the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame, was very reluctant to do so, and actually was fighting back tears, talking about how it was tough for him to come out at this forum on a day where he should be celebrated and should be amongst the other finalists there of the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame that he actually had to come out to explain to the people that were there as to why he's been the way he's been over the years and because of concussions. And the reason why I bring this up is because you wonder if this is going to be anything close or near to a similar effect of what happened back in 2013, as I mentioned earlier, with the whole League of Denial thing with concussions and what the NHL is going to do about that. Now, of course, they've been doing whatever it takes as far as the penalties are concerned and I'm sure with the equipment and things of that nature. But the one thing for certain is is that now, whenever you have an issue where somebody gets checked into a board, or God forbid, if there's a fight tape that breaks out amongst players on the ice and they're going toe-to-toe and then the helmet comes flying off and what you've noticed here, especially in the last year or so, is that the linesmen jump in once the player's helmet goes off because that's what they want to avoid. Just 
flush hits from the fist to the head without a helmet where generally if players are going to be fighting amongst one another and they have their helmets on, at least they have that to protect themselves. Which is kind of weird because as we all know, when you take your hand and you're punching that hard plastic for 20 or 30 seconds, it's Macy kind of moronic, but at the same time, hey, I guess it does work. But be that as it may, the point of the matter is, is that because he has come out and stated that he has this condition based on this concussion that what happened five, six years ago, how many other players in the league or, or even out of the league that may be going through this, number one, and number two, what is the league going to do about it moving forward? So I'm not here to say that, oh, there's going to be a snowball effect or some sort of groundswell to see if the commissioner or the hockey powers that be try to either sweep this under the rug or think, oh, it has nothing to do with that. No, if they're smart, they know. And I'm sure that they've been doing their best to try to figure out the best possible way to have less players concussed because I'm sure it's a wide epidemic throughout the league and we all know about certain tough guys in the past, in particular Bob Probert that have had CTE and who knows how many other players or even goalies for that matter. And look at it, this guy's a goalie. So you wouldn't think that a goalie would be affected. So this is something that I don't think it had a lot of legs over the last couple of days because again, it's hockey and everybody's focused by the NFL and maybe some of the other sports, you know, college football, et cetera. But I tell you, that was a very sobering story to read. And I just kind of wonder what trickle-down effect is that going to have with not only other players that are out there maybe battling the same condition, but also what the league's going to do as far as taking care of that. So just something to keep of note as we continue to move ahead here during this hockey season and who knows if anything else comes out of it uh, as we move along. Now, as far as the NHL is concerned, uh, I mean, it's pretty much the same old song and dance when you look around the league. Uh, not many other teams. I, if there's one thing, if you, you wanted to look up something, which I, I think would be uh, pretty interesting, uh, if I can remember his name, the Red Wings who have had just an awful season. And the Red Wings are the dregs of the NHL. When there was a guy on their team who scored an empty net goal the other night, and I'm sure you could YouTube it, just uh, Red Wings empty net goal. I believe his name is Philip. Jeez, uh, I got to look up his name. But anyway, and I'll do that as, as I'm talking about it right now. He scored a goal, an empty net goal, 190 feet. It didn't even touch the ice. I mean, that's how majestic it was. And before you think to yourself, like, wait a minute, how is that possible? And that, even me, when I heard that, I said, no, nah, there's no way. I mean, I, I can't even imagine something like that where a player is just going to, from 190 feet, is just going to shoot a puck high in the air and it's just going to just land in the back of the net. Not as if it's going to touch the ice or anything. And again, I just found that just very surprising. And that happened against Winnipeg just a couple nights ago. And the guy that scored the goal, yes, his name is Philip Ronick, H-R-O-N-E-K. So if you want to look that up and get a kick out of that, that's pretty much been the highlight of the Detroit Red Wing season. So if you want to YouTube that, please feel uh, free to do so. But as far as the NHL, everything else has pretty much been the same. Uh, what could you say? I don't want to beat on two coconuts, but at the same time, it's one of those things where the league is pretty much right now, the Capitals, the Bruins, the Blues, Edmonton, uh, you haven't had many changes as far as standings and any particular big streaks, bad streaks, hot streaks, cold streaks of that ilk when you're looking at the National Hockey League from 30,000 feet. 
And yeah, that's what we pretty much have there with the NHL. We'll continue to keep our eyes on that as we get closer to the end of the season or the end of the year, I should say, as we're just now 15 days away from New Year's Eve and of course 2020, the new decade. So let me sign off with this, my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week, I'll stick with the NHL. I'm going to say Drew Doughty, the LA Kings defenseman who during an interview between periods came out and pretty much told the league that fighting needs to be part of this league because it takes away a lot of the stick work. And even he mentioned, which it was just hysterical, when he mentioned, yeah, it controls the quote-unquote rats of the league. I guess a lot of the small players who like to stick swing and take cheap shots with their stick, how fighting needs to be a part of this game, how it not only from a standpoint of momentum, but even just the physicality of it, And Drew, you got my vote, my guy. So high five to you and good for you for putting that out there. I'm sure the league didn't like that, but guess what? It's not as if when an NHL fight goes on that people start running for the exits or like Don Cherry once said, people are going to get a cup of coffee. No, that's never been the case and it never will be the case because sadly, it's part of entertainment. And even though I don't look at sports as entertainment from that perspective, because you look at it more from a fan and winning and losing and intimidation, whatever it may be. But again, Drew, I hear you loud and clear and I'm sure the league did too. And if you get fined for it, please, uh, I'll put up a GoFundMe for that. But I don't think that'd be the case. But anyway, that's my hero of the week. And my zero of the week is Janoris Jenkins, the former giant cornerback, for his tweet, which was very insensitive in response to what a fan had said, using the R word. uh, We'll just say for the person that is not necessarily physically challenged, but we'll just say mentally challenged. And by him doing that, he tried to justify it that's by him saying that it's used as slang where he's from. It's part of my culture. It's hood talk. It's, I mean, Janoris, come on. Uh, we get all that, but at the same time, it certainly doesn't justify you putting that out there, especially for the whole world to see. And I'm sure he's a little better, smarter than that. But I guess maybe that was his way to get out because once the Giants waved him, literally five seconds later, he came out with a tweet that said, thank you. Or he said, best news ever, thank you. So he's looking to latch on to another team. I don't know if a team who's desperate needs another cornerback. But I'm sure probably at some point this week, because the NFL season is about to conclude, as we all know, he may get signed somewhere. And that's just typical of the league. But again, based on his actions and what he said and trying to back it up by using it as hood talk, he gets uh, my zero of the week. So that will conclude this week's episode of the j Podcast. I'm uh, looking forward to hoping, praying, fingers crossed, everybody, to get a couple of interviews here before the end of the year, as right now, my work behind the scenes is going into overtime. I have some time off. I'm laying back a little bit, but at the same time, I want to be able to put forth a very productive, but also very informative and, of course, credible. All those things that you want to get from a podcast, just not me babble about nonsense or the same old narratives that you see on some of the talk shows there on the cable sports networks. I won't say who or what, but I'm sure you can figure it out because this is what I love to do, people. It's been in the blood and your contribution to this is very minimal if you can do so by going to wherever you get your podcasts. So I don't know where that may be. It could be on Apple. It could be on Google. It could be on Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, iHeartRadio, any one of those platforms. If you could just go ahead, hit subscribe. Also, leave a review if you may, you know, just a little blurb about what you think I bring as far as to the sports table, talking about everything that's happening in the world of sports. And also, 
leave a review and post a rating. If you could do that, I'll be forever indebted to you guys because, again, all that's going to do is just increase the visibility of this podcast amongst the many others and just generate interest for the outside people to say, hey, who is this J Reels guy? Oh, wait a minute. This guy's reaching out to me to be a part of his program, to be a guest. So whether that's a former athlete, current athlete, a broadcaster, writer, sportscaster, whatever it may be. So please, if you could go ahead and do that, people, as an early Christmas gift, I would greatly appreciate it. And also, you can hit me up with any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever you may feel. Do so on any of my social media accounts, whether it's J Reels on Instagram, J Reels One, just a number on Twitter, the J Reels Podcast on my Facebook fan page, as well as an email address, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. I'm open to listening to whatever it is that you have to say, people. So please feel free to do so. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to the production of the podcast, you could do so at my, on my Patreon page, which is www.patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the J Rules Podcast. Again, I'd be forever indebted and just gracious for any contribution, whether it's a donation, whether it's a review, a rating, whatever it may be, because I'll be here. Each and every week to deliver everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.